the sermon we're talking about today, the text that we're looking at today is actually about the end. The end times, the end uh, when Jesus will return. And some people love to talk about end times. Uh, some people, uh, there's, there's TV preachers who've got charts and they've got timelines and some of them even make predictions of dates that Jesus is going to return. And, and uh, throughout all of Christian history, there's always a few people who gather a following um, and, and, and they, they will teach and they'll point out in their generation uh, the catastrophic events or the international news and point to that these are the signs of the end times. And many of them are bold enough to predict a date and gather a following of people who uh, buy into their teaching. And so uh, some of you might remember in the 80s there was a guy named Edgar Wisnant. And Edgar Wisnant was a NASA engineer turned Bible scholar uh, in his spare time. And, uh, and so he predicted that the rapture was going to happen in 1988. Well, clearly he was wrong because uh, here we are today. And so if you're not familiar with the word rapture, it's not actually in the Bible, but it's a word that people use to describe uh, when Jesus returns and Christians are, will vanish from the earth and be taken to heaven and, and everyone else is left behind. So that's where the idea comes from. And so he wrote this pamphlet, Edgar did, called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And so he gave 88 reasons why he thought he was right. Uh, produced 3.2 million of these and distributed them throughout the United States. Had a, a big following until 1988 came and went. But that did not stop him. He wrote 89 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1989, followed by 93 reasons in 93, 94 reasons in 94, before he gave up and realized he has no idea what he's talking about. But there's always going to be a group of people who are trying to pinpoint the dates and times of the end times. Now, maybe you uh, aren't one of those people. Uh, maybe you, like me, um, you don't have charts and timelines and all those things. Um, but I think all of us kind of ask the question of, Jesus, are you returning in my lifetime? Like, when are you coming back? And if you do return in my lifetime, am I ready? Like, what am I supposed to do to be prepared? What am I supposed to do to prepare for the end times? Now, some of you are sitting here and you're like, Pastor Ken, I got this one down. Like, I've watched all nine seasons of The Waking Dead. Or Walking Dead, sorry, that's to call it Walking Dead. I don't watch it. But some of you, you, you've watched it all, you're ready for the zombie apocalypse, you've got like all the guns and ammunition stocked up in your home, you've got like canned food for months and months, you've got a game plan for like, when it all goes down, you're like, I'm prepared. So like, check mark, Pastor Ken, I'm, I'm good with this one, uh, I don't need today's sermon. And if that's you, uh, I think you might be a little disappointed with Jesus' uh, definition of readiness for his coming return. Now, maybe you're over here, though, and you're like, uh, hearing all that stuff, you're like, I'm not prepared. You're like, thinking about it, and you're like, I don't have any guns. Like, I haven't built a bunker in my backyard. I don't have, like, seven years of canned food. And you're like, oh, and you're starting to get anxious and nervous. And let me just say, calm down. It's okay. I don't have any of those things either. And, and what we're going to see is that those are not the types of things that Jesus talks about when he tells us to be ready for his second coming. But Jesus does, in fact, talk about his return. And so we're going to look today as Jesus tells us what it looks like for us to be prepared, for us to be ready for his second coming. And we we'll are see this in, in the book of Mark chapter 13. Before we turn there, though, 
I want to catch you up on our series. So we're in a series right now called Life with Jesus. And in this series, we're looking at what it means to do life with Jesus. And we've been walking through the book of Mark, chapter by chapter. And in the book of Mark, we hear from Jesus as he teaches us what it means to do life with him. And we don't want to do life simply for God or from God or over God or under God, but we want to do life with him, in relationship with him, walking with him. And so we've been learning about that together. And if you've been with us in in Mark chapter 8, we saw that it was kind of a turning point. As Jesus begins to predict his own death, and partway through Mark chapter 8, he predicts his death, and he begins to predict it three times in the book of Mark. But we see that turning point where from then on in the book of Mark, Jesus is headed towards the cross. And so we find ourselves in Mark 13, the final week of Jesus' life. On Sunday, he's rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. On Friday, he will be crucified on a cross. And where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 13 is on Wednesday night. And I want you to turn there with me. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Jesus and his disciples, they are about to leave the temple in Jerusalem. They've been in this temple since Mark chapter 11. And Jesus has been teaching and interacting with the teachers of the law there. And now Jesus and his disciples are walking out of the temple, Mark chapter 13. They're leaving that place. And as they walk out, one of his disciples comments about how beautiful the temple is, about how massive the stones are. And I got a picture. This is is one of the outside walls of the Temple Mount. And this is what it looks like today. And if you see the bottom stones, you can see how massive the stones are. Those are from the time of Jesus. And you work your way up. They're more recent stones in in terms of rebuilds over the last 2,000 years. But at the bottom, you can see these massive stones. And they have even larger stones in different places on the Temple Mount. And so Jesus and his disciples are are walking out, and one of his disciples comments, look at how massive these stones are. Look at how amazing the temple is here in Jerusalem. And Jesus shockingly tells his disciples this prophecy that every single one of those stones is going to be torn down. Look with me, beginning in verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings... And Jesus responds, verse 2, Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone will be left here. Uh, Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So Jesus makes this comment. And the disciples are kind of shook up by this. And then they, they probably quietly, they walk across the Kidron Valley, which is right there, and then up the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the Temple Mount. And so here's a picture from the Mount of Olives, and there's a valley in between, and then that's the temple walls. You can see the walls surrounding, and then currently there's the Dome of the Rock there, but that's where the temple would have been in the midst of this massive Temple Mount. And so they're sitting on the side of the Mount of Olives looking across at this magnificent temple. And while they're there, four of the disciples privately ask Jesus, And they're going to ask him two questions. Look with me. Continue on in verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately. They're going to ask him two questions. Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? The disciples asked, when is the temple going to be destroyed? When is this prophecy going to come about? Like, what's the date? Can you give us a timeline? Can you chart this out for us? 
And then secondly, what are some signs? What are some indicators? What are some insider tips, Jesus? Like, let us in on some secrets on how we'll know that this is all about to happen. Now, you've got to understand that as these, these four good Jewish boys would have, have processed their theology, they would have understood that the, this, this destruction of the temple and the end times were going to be happening all at once. So they thought that this temple's going to be destroyed, Jesus will return, and, uh, and this will be the end of the world as we know it. And what we're going to see is that Jesus separates those two events. That Jesus separates those two things. And so Jesus is going to talk about the destruction of the temple in, in Jerusalem. And he's going to give them some signs for that. But Jesus is also going to talk about his second coming, his return. But that's a separate event. And he separates out those two things that the disciples thought were one and the same. But Jesus does it in standard Jesus fashion, which is he doesn't answer their questions directly, right? And, and so he's kind of got this long answer that he separates these two things out. And so in verses 5 through 23, I don't have time to read them, um, but you can look at them this week. But verses 5 through 23, Jesus gives his disciples, Jesus gives his followers some signs, some indicators, some insider tips for them to know that the destruction of the temple was about to happen. Jesus was telling his disciples, in your lifetime, this is going to happen, and here are some signs, here are some in indicators, here are some insider tips that you will know when these things, verses 5 through 23, are happening. To run, to get out of Jerusalem, to flee to the mountains, because the Romans are going to come in and they're going to destroy the temple. And that very thing happened about 40 years later after Jesus said this. In the year 70 AD, the Roman government, the Roman armies came in. There was a, a war from 66 through 70, and it culminated in 70 with all of Israel being taken over and the temple being burned to the ground and every stone being knocked over. And so Jesus gives them these indicators, these signs that these things were going to happen. And then in verse 28, Jesus gives a, a parable regarding this. And he, he uses a fig tree. Now, you got to understand, in Israel, most of the trees, most of the, the life there is evergreens. So they're green all the time. But a fig tree is one of the only trees in Israel that loses its leaves. So Jesus uses it as an illustration to say, in springtime, when you see the leaves begin to bud on a fig tree, it's an indication of what? That summer's coming. Summer's around the corner. And he said, just like that, when you see the things in verses 5 through 23 happening, Jesus says to his disciples, you know that the end of the temple is near. The destruction is coming. And so Jesus gives them very practical tools for the disciples in their generation to know that the temple was about to be destroyed. But then concerning the end of the world, concerning Jesus' second coming, we see Jesus says something very different. So jump down now to verse 32 with me. Go to verse 32. Jesus says this, but about that day, and he's indicating the day of judgment, but about that day or hour, the hour when the Son of God, the Son of Man is going to return, when Jesus is going to come back, he says about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus says to his disciples that concerning the end times, He's not going to give them any indication of when that's going to happen. He doesn't give them a timeline. He doesn't give them a date. He doesn't give them an hour. And the shocking reason Jesus doesn't do that is because he doesn't know. Like what? Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back? Like Jesus doesn't know his own schedule? 
clearly he's a dude, right? And so Jesus doesn't give them a timeline. Jesus, instead, Jesus uh, tells them to be prepared and to live ready. Now with this, for people who've got their charts out and they've got their predictions, it's so shocking to me because Jesus doesn't even know when he's going to return. And so why are they so confident that they've got this figured out? You see, Jesus was less concerned with predicting the date of the future, with predicting the end times, with predicting his second coming. He was less concerned with predicting the future and more concerned with preparing us for it. You see, Jesus tells us to put away the charts, the timelines, and to quit trying to guess dates. And instead, rather, be ready at all times. And in fact, this is our big idea this morning. If you want to write it down, you can. That life with Jesus is always ready for his return. That a life with Jesus, someone who is doing life with Jesus, in relationship with Jesus, they're supposed to be ready for his return at all times. Be ready at all times. And so we see this in the the next verses. Look with me at verse 33. Jesus says this, Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. Everybody say assigned task. And tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, verse 35, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he, su- if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Jesus tells his disciples to be ready at all times, to be constantly watching, to be constantly doing their assigned tasks. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we're supposed to be keeping watch and just looking up at the sky, I'm ready, we're waiting, we're, we're keeping watch, Lord. No, that's not what he's saying. Keeping watch was an assigned task. You see, in, in verse 34, he said that he leaves his servants with assigned tasks, and if you're the one at the door, the, the doorman, your job is to keep watch. And so Jesus is saying, do what I've asked you to do. Do your assigned task while you await my coming, so that when I show up, whenever it is, that you're not caught off guard, but that you are living how I've called you to live. And in Matthew's version, Matthew accounts the same, uh, the same teaching, but he adds that Jesus uh, said it will be like a thief in the night. Maybe you've heard that before. Jesus will come like a thief in the night. And the problem with thieves is that they don't call you and, and, and try to schedule when they're going to rob you. Now do they? Like, think about it. Like when, when, when you and your spouse are locking up at night, you don't ask, hey, should we lock the doors tonight? Like, should we set the alarm? And your spouse goes, oh, let me check the schedule. Uh, no, we don't need to lock the, the doors tonight. There's no thieves scheduled tonight. But tomorrow night, we've got a 10 p.m. and a 3 a.m. Uh, on the schedule. No, that's not how it works, right? A thief comes when it's most unlikely, when you least expect it. And Jesus' second coming is going to be like that. And so Jesus tells us to be prepared to be ready at all times. Now, how would you live differently? How would you live differently if you knew Jesus were coming back tonight? What would change? How would you live differently if you knew that Jesus was going to come back this next week or this next month? 
How would you live differently if you knew, if you had this urgency that Jesus was going to come back? Wouldn't it make you ask the question, am I ready? Am I living my life in a way that I wouldn't have a lot of regrets? How would you live differently if you knew he was going to show up later this week? Say Wednesday night at 8 p.m., wherever you are, Jesus walked around the corner of that room and walked in and said, Surprise, I'm back. What would be your response? Would you be ready for him? Would you hug him and be like, Oh, I've been waiting for you. I've been living for you. Would you have regrets? Would you, would you be worried? Would you be afraid? Are you ready for his return? Maybe it's time that we start reprioritizing our lives this morning. Maybe it's time for us to start living in light of eternity and Jesus' return. Maybe you would think about living differently this morning. You see, I think that this question has the potential to change a lot of things in our lives. It might be for you the way that you use your finances. It might be for you the the career decisions you make. It might be uh, your relationships and some unspoken things or unresolved conflict you have in your life. Maybe it would impact the way that you serve and the way that you are, are giving away your time. But the thing I want to focus on in the remaining time we have together is, is the one thing I see in Mark 13, the one application point there. But as I, I speak through all this, I, I just want to encourage you to, to be open to the Spirit of God asking you what it is for you you need to reprioritize in the season. Because it might be different for all of us. But I want, I'm going to give one application that I see here in the Mark 13 text, which is this, that Jesus' return brings mission urgency. The fact that Jesus is going to come again is going to be unexpected. We're not going to know when it is. It brings mission urgency. The fact that this world will not go on without end, it brings mission urgency, that you and I are supposed to be a part of his mission. And we see in verse 10, it says this, right in the middle of this whole passage, it says this, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. That preaching the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus with all nations is first priority. And then in verse 34, we read this already, but it's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. You see, Jesus is saying that we are supposed to be preaching the gospel to all nations, that you and I, we have the assigned task of making his name known on all places of the earth. That that is what you and I are supposed to be doing. That's how we're supposed to be living, to live prepared for his return. We're supposed to be trying to get as many people as possible prepared for Jesus' return. And that's the role we're supposed to play. So I want to ask you, are you intentional with the non-Christians in your 8 to 15? Now you might not be familiar with 8 to 15. It's terminology we use to talk about the 8 to 15 people on average that each of us have in our lives that you have an influence on. And God has called you to be a, to, he wants to bless you to be a blessing in their lives. And if you know Jesus, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you're supposed to share Jesus with those people. So how are you doing at being intentional with the non-Christians in your 8 to 15? And maybe for some of you, you've created a Christian bubble for yourself. And you don't have a, no, a lot of non-believers in your life. Maybe that's something you need to change. But we're supposed to live on urgent mission. 
And I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking, what if every decision we made, we filtered through a, a mission filter? Like every decision we made, we thought about how does this impact the mission of Jesus? How does this impact uh, what Jesus wants to do in seeking and saving the lost in and through my life? I was thinking about it in terms of vacations and retirement. And let me start off by saying, I don't think that you shouldn't take vacations. And I don't, I don't think that it's bad for you to retire. I don't think it's bad for us to enjoy great things that God wants to give you. Rest and relaxation are important. But many of us, we live and work super hard for the end goal of vacation or the end goal of retirement. And so we work super hard, and then the end game, the end goal is retirement. The end goal is rest and relaxation in vacation. But what if instead we looked at vacation as an opportunity and time for us to be refueled for the sake of the mission? What if as a disciple, as a believer, our vacation was to get refueled, to get recharged, so that we could do more work, more kingdom work for Jesus? What if instead of retirement being all about simply us enjoying ourselves, but it was to free us up to have the capacity to repurpose our time and our talents away from our careers and and into other things that God calls us to, the assigned tasks that he has for us in that season? What if we started to think through with mission urgency, a mission filter? I think a lot of things in our lives would change. I think it would change the way we looked at our resources, I know for me, it's had an impact on the way that I look at, at housing. So when my wife and I, 10 years ago, we bought a home uh, in Huntington Beach. And when we bought that house, the two of us had different visions for what it would look like. You see, I envisioned this home to be a refuge for me. I thought that this was going to be a place of rest and relaxation and, and a space for introverted reading. And if you're like me, raise your hand if you can... If you're like that, okay, there's a few godly people in the room. Awesome. Well, my wife had a very different vision. She didn't get my memo on, on my idea for our home. And so she saw our house as a, a place for God to invite in as many people possible, to welcome them in, to show them hospitality, and to, to use it as a place for us to disciple other people. And so pretty quickly, I found my house was filled with young adults, and, and our door was never locked because people could just come in whenever they wanted. And, and we, we had all the time people over, living with us, staying with us. I mean, we, whether or not we're home, people were over uh, using our space and being there. And over time, though, over time, I really caught the vision for the why. Because I had looked at my stuff as, as self-serving for me. Um, But my wife had looked at our stuff as how can we use this for God's kingdom? How can we influence other people's lives? And so we've invited people in and and, and we've shifted our focus and that's become the focus of our home. Now, where did my wife learn this? She learned it from her parents. Rick and Mae Plummer. uh, Rick will be playing drums again here in a moment. And Rick and, and Mae Plummer, that's the way they operated their household. And so when their four daughters were in middle school, high school, their house was the house to be at. Every weekend, they'd have 20, 30, 40 middle school, high school kids over, having parties, they'd have pool parties, uh, they would feed, feed these kids food, and so kids just loved to come and hang out at their house. And Rick and May would use it as an opportunity to influence, to impact the lives of these young people. 
And so instead of looking at their resources as an opportunity to escape, as an opportunity to, to, to have a big house in which to hide from this, this broken and dark world around them, instead they looked at it, how can we use this to invite people in? And how can we impact their lives and make a difference in their lives for Jesus? And so I've been challenged by that. And I think all of us would think about our belongings, our resources, our time, our talents, our treasures. We'd think about them differently if we took seriously Jesus' teaching for us to live ready, that he's going to return, and that we should live with mission urgency. It would change a lot for us if we believe these things. But you see, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to return, and the question is, are you ready? Are you living a life that is constantly ready? Are you ready at all times? Are you living a life that's on mission right now? Not just, oh, I hope to get there someday, but right now. Are you living the type of life that if Jesus walked around the corner this week into whatever room you're in, that you would be ready? Or would you have some regrets? Especially regrets of your apathy in this area of mission. See, many of us, when we know that we're going to the dentist, we start brushing our teeth we start flossing. The flossing is the big one, right? Like, oh, I got a dentist appointment next week. All of a sudden, I'm flossing every single day religiously, right? And, and, and I start doing that. Why? Because I'm hoping when I get to the dentist that I'm going to be able to fool them and they're going to think I've had those good hygiene habits like the whole time, right? And what I've discovered in my own life is that it doesn't work. They always catch me. They always know, hey, you haven't been flossing very well. I, was like, oh, I did it for a week and I thought I'd get away. But the reality is, and you know this, you can't cram for the dentist. And likewise, you and I, we cannot cram for Jesus' second coming, for his return. Instead, we have to live ready at all times. So my question is, are you ready? What needs to change in your life? What priorities do you need to reprioritize? So that if Jesus came back this week, this month, this year, you would be ready. You see, a life with Jesus is always ready for his return. I pray that you will live that way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray for our church family, for this community, God, that we would be people not concerned about charting out the events that are happening around the world, trying to figure out a timeline of when you're going to return. But rather, Lord, I pray that we would live in hopeful expectation of your return, that we would, in the meantime, live with mission urgency. God, that at the end of our life, that we wouldn't have regrets because of apathy, because of our lack of effort in sharing the good news of Jesus with the world around us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would highlight the ways we need to reprioritize our lives, God, in light of your second coming. And I want to pray for maybe some of you who are here and you're not expectant of his return. You're not looking forward to his return because, frankly, you'd be afraid if Jesus showed up this Wednesday at your house. That you're afraid maybe of God's judgment. You're afraid of, of his response to you. And let me just say, uh, when my kids, when I arrive home from work, Oftentimes, my kids come running to the door, Daddy, Daddy, and they, they want to hug me. Daddy, let's, let's play hockey. Daddy, let's go swimming. Daddy, read me a book. 
But when I come home and they've been misbehaving and they think I'm going to be upset, they don't come running to the door. Instead, they, they're kind of hiding and, and ashamed. And maybe some of you feel that way with God. Let me tell you this morning, you don't have to. You don't have to feel that way with God. You don't have to be afraid of him. You see, when Jesus came the first time, he came not to bring judgment, but to be judged on your behalf on a cross, to take your judgment on a cross so that you could enter into a relationship with God, so that you could do life with Jesus now and forevermore. And so if you're afraid of him, you don't have to be afraid any longer. He took all of your shame. He took all of your guilt upon him. And he invites you this morning to put your faith and trust in him, to seek his forgiveness, and he'll forgive you, and to begin to do life with him now and forevermore. And so if that's you, I just want to pray with you. Heavenly Father, God, I pray, Lord, I pray that they would receive your forgiveness in this moment, God, that they would no longer live in fear of their maker, but that, God, as all of us at one point will stand face to face with you, God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life, his perfect life, and the fact that he offers perfect righteousness, right standing before God, and that he took our judgment and penalty upon himself. And so, God, I pray that we would live without fear of your second coming, God, that we would live in peace and joy because we've already surrendered our lives to you. We already want to live our lives with you. And so, God, we look forward to your coming. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.